Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our loved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter, and uh, we will be joined later on by Jeremy Appel and Sarah Buchanan. Not to mention Lauren, Lauren Latour. And Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. So just briefly, before we go into environment news, uh, I have to say that systematic sexual assault is occurring in at least one U.S. concentration camp, while in others there are people committing suicide as nearly all asylum claims are being rejected. Two far-right anti-Muslim racists have been nominated by the Republicans for the Senate and Congress, and armed clashes between far-right protesters and anti-racist protesters are erupting across that country. But uh, moving on from that vortex, and into another one, over 30 wildfires have, be, have brought a state of emergency to California during a terrible heat wave, and the state recently turned off power to 2 million people in California's first rolling blackout since 2001. Possibly the world's highest temperature ever recorded has been marked recently in California as well, with Death Valley reaching 130 degrees Fahrenheit or 54.5 degrees Celsius. And nationofchange.org recently reported that Democrat California Governor Gavin Newsom has okayed two new fracking permits to Chevron in partnership with Goldman Sachs. The drilling permits were given because the company has promised to start using primarily solar electricity to power the fracking fracking operations in a complicated cap-and-trade scheme to lower their overall emissions. The gas to be produced, however, might be worse than even some tar sands project, uh, products in, cer- in terms of quality and carbon footprint. Greenpeace USA said this is environmental racism because the projects will add to the already dense concentrations of toxic airborne chemicals in the oil field of Lost Hills, a community that is 97% Latinx. The permits have, of course, been awarded in the midst of a pandemic that has disproportionately affected Latin American communities. Steve Korn of Nation of Change notes that, quote, recent studies by both Harvard and Stanford University have found higher COVID-19 case numbers in communities situated near areas with high industrial pollution levels. And behold, the Trump regime has opened the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling, which is one of the world's last pristine wilderness areas. Democracy Now! points out, quote, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt is a former oil lobbyist who has been accused of ethics violations and making policy decisions that directly benefited former clients. Indigenous people in the Amazon are, of course, still being attacked for their land and are dying in higher numbers from COVID-19, as are people of color in the U.S. and Canada. Regarding the ongoing fires and deforestation in the Amazon, uh, Catherine Early for The Ecologist quotes Greenpeace Brazil campaigner Romulo Batista as saying, quote, Deforestation is about organized crime, sponsored by big landholders, cattle ranchers and land grabbers that operate with impunity, shielded by the dismantling of the environmental protection policies and law enforcement that the Bolsonaro administration continues to advance in Brazil. Researchers out of Ohio State have found that Greenland ice, the Greenland ice sheet appears to have reached a point of no return, and it will continue slipping away even if the planet stops warming. The authors of the study, writing in Nature Communications, Earth and Environment, write, quote, The Greenland ice sheet is losing mass at accelerated rates in the 21st century, making it the largest single contributor to rising sea levels. Faster flow of outlet glaciers has substantially contributed to this loss, with the cause of speed-up and potential for future change uncertain. German farmers are being plagued by field mice who are tunneling underground to gnaw roots with their little vibrating teeth, affecting a quarter of farmland across the country. 
Kate Connolly reports for The Guardian that some farmers will lose two-thirds of their income as a result. The problems being caused by mild winters and dry summers, a reduction in rodenticide use, which is, of course, poison that kills rodents, as well as the widespread hunting of foxes. Also in Germany, climate activists occupied two power stations on the 8th of August to get the country to move off coal faster than planned. The country stopped producing coal in 2018, but still burns it for 10% of its power. Activists near Cologne blocked a couple entries to a, a couple entries to a shell refinery as well, and others cemented their feet in front of Heidelberg Cement to protest a cement factory planned for the Kenden Mountains in Indonesia. Sonali Huria reports for The Ecologist that the government of India recently blocked the websites of Fridays for Future, Let India Breathe, and There Is No Earth Be, using an anti-terror law. And Shashikant Yadav reports for the same publication, quote, Oil and gas corporations have been allowed to begin drilling and other hydrocarbon exploration activities in India without conducting environmental impact assessment studies or public consultations since the beginning of this year. Meanwhile, in Iowa, a vicious derecho storm has wrecked terrible destruction, with the team at Iowa Starting Line writing, quote, We haven't seen something like this before. We have no frame of reference. Local reporters have covered it extensively, but unless you see it in person, it's impossible to fully visualize. Over a third of the state's farmland was damaged by the storm, and the president of the Iowa Farmers Union, Aaron Lehman, is quoted in the New York Times as saying, quote, None of us have experienced wind like this. And you're talking about a situation where there are farmers who have been farming for five or six decades. And finally, a new technique out of Arizona State has found a way to identify accumulated micro and nanoplastics in human organs, which will help scientists determine the health impacts of the thousands and thousands of tiny plastic particles we all ingest every year. Twenty twenty, a slew of good news off the top, as always. But 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 I want to pull out two quick things from what you highlighted there. And the first is to highlight the fact that these California wildfighters, wildfires continue to live at the intersection of the tri-headed crisis of systemic racism, COVID nineteen, and climate change that is America twenty twenty. Yeah, this is because California's wildland firefighters are missing a significant portion of their normal numbers due to the fact that COVID-19 is raging through California prisons. And normally, the state depends on about 2,200 incarcerated people to help with the fire line. And prisoners amount to about 40% of California's firefighting force. However, in July, due to outbreaks within the prison system and also within the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's fire camps, the fire camps themselves, they are without as many as one-third of these normal crews. And to provide a, cent, a, price, uh, to provide a sense of the price comparison uh, and to understand just how much the, these prisoners are being exploited— a report from the Sacramento Bee indicates that there are approximately 800 fewer inmate firefighters this year than there were in 2019, and that the government is of California is about to spend, is about to hire 858 temporary firefighters at a cost of 72.8 million dollars. For that price tag, the state of California would pay nearly 39,000 prisoners to fight fires for a full year at their indefensible wage of $5.12 per day that these inmates make. 858 normal temporary firefighters or 39000 for a year. Now, that does not include, I guess, the, the state of actually giving these people the equipment and etc., but still, $5.12 is not a living is not a wage obviously these are prisoners that is borderline slavery 
What makes matters worse is that these inmates are also not allowed to be hired as firefighters once they are released due to their criminal record. And secondly, I want to pull attention quickly to Iowa, as I can't help but feel like it's an omen for what is to come. You know, towns, communities, lives destroyed by the thousands, and a news cycle that does not give it more than a passing glance. You know, and this treatment is depressingly common for climate disasters across the globe. I mean, only a few weeks ago, a quarter of Bangladesh was flooded, costing millions their homes and livelihoods, and it likely didn't even break through the through most news bubbles, given the vortex of news that is Trump and COVID. However, the fact that such a disaster could happen right in the middle of continental United States and still be glossed over is an expression of both what happens when newsrooms are gutted across the country and also how quickly the media moves on after, after the Iowa caucuses have sent along their delegates every four years. I mean, the Dureko, just like the flooding in Bangladesh, impacts the poor and vulnerable most significantly and only serve to more greatly exacerbate the already growing inequalities in our world. And we allow these disasters to pass by our consciousness at our own peril, as they will not stop, they will not slow down, and until we, be, until we begin to take them all seriously and respond in the ways we must. David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and now Lauren C. Latour has uh, joined us. The C? <laughs> it's, it's real. Technically, I have I have four names. Technically, it's Lauren Elizabeth Core Latour, but I'll take it. Whatever you feel like. I'll remember that for next time. And so now we're going to start with Mr. Joe Biden. So the uh, lying dog-faced pony soldier Joe Biden is now officially the Democrat presidential nominee and he has had an intriguing climate plan that would spend $2 trillion over four years on things like ending all electricity sector emissions by 2035, retrofitting buildings and helping victims of systemic racism and discrimination. Zoya Tierstein pointed out for Grist last month as well that three more obscure policies uh, could also have major impacts on emissions and the economy. Tierstein writes that Biden's plan would fund R&D for data-driven farming that uses monitors, satellites, and sensors to uh, use water and pesticides more efficiently. It would invest in infrastructure for pedestrians, cyclists, e-scooters, and other micro-mobility, other micro-mobility devices. And it would create universal 5G so more people can have remote jobs. Just recently, however, the Democratic Party decided to change its official climate platform to no longer include language calling for the ending of fossil fuel subsidies and investing in renewables. Biden and Harris uh, both ran on ending fossil fuel subsidies, and the party voted in favor of it, but DNC officials are now calling it an error that was incorrectly included in the document. HuffPost reports that U.S. fossil fuel subsidies could be anywhere... Uh, between $20 billion to $650 billion a year. I will say, as a point of clarity, after the climate Twitter and climate reporting uh, were responded to an uproar to this news about the fact that it had been removed, the a one of the members of Biden's team, Steph Feldman, tweeted out, she's a policy director for Biden, tweeted out that, quote, Joe Biden continues to be committed to ending U.S. fossil fuel subsidies and rallying the rest of the world to do the same, as was outlined in his climate plan last year. So who knows? You know, did it get did it get removed from the DNC platform? Yes. Are is Biden still claiming he supports it? Also yes. Uh, and there's not really been an explanation as to as to why. By, the Biden campaign hasn't expressed or explained why this occurred. So we're I'm still not you know, I'm still not really holding my breath here, to be honest. The the fossil fuel subsidies have been one of those things which, you know, the Canadian governments have run around saying they'll remove them, and yet they persist. These things persist in a way that are that is much harder, I think, to get rid of, um, or at least that the politicians see it as much harder to get rid of than than they should be, really. 
But uh, to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in the same boat there. I mean, the liberals have been claiming for how long that they're gonna re- that they're gonna eliminate what was what was it like inefficient fossil fuel subsidies or something like that. It's been it's been a talking point at the sort of like G twenty sphere for years now, and we haven't seen any any meaningful progress being made on that front. Is it still disappointing that it's been dropped from the platform? Obviously, yes. Like I think in the article that um that was specifically cited earlier the huff post article um it it notes that greenpeace puts out a report card and in greenpeace's previous sort of um uh report card that was put out during the primaries both biden and uh kamala uh received like a b plus rating which is like actually like a pretty solid rating and now assessing them as a slate um, once this plan was released, it drops down to something like a C plus, which I like, I know this is like Greenpeace's rating. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's not fluffy. I'm not, I'm not knocking Greenpeace here. It can be taken with a grain of salt, but I think what that demonstrates is that like, it, it makes me worry that the ambition that was demonstrated in the last, ca- in the last year was ultimately just a primary ploy in order to pull as many voters as possible from when they were still running Bernie and Warren and, and even Jay Inslee to a degree. So so that is definitely like some cause for concern. I, again, especially when it comes to subsidies, I'll totally believe it when I see it. And and until then, I I it's not that I don't have faith in the Democratic Party period, but but this one in particular is sticky. Yeah. The thing about the common policy especially in the within the DNC is you often get a president who is willing to go further than than the Congress or the Senate. And so the fact that, you know, even the fact that the ticket of Harris and Biden might be going further or might might have said earlier they want to go further, the fact that the DNC is pulling back is already bad news. You know, it doesn't matter how much Biden wanted to do it. Obama said that he really wanted to get a price on carbon. And I, and I think I still believe that. But... You know, but the but the Joe Mansions of the world didn't, and therefore here we are, right? And so to me, it's it's one thing to to hear that the Biden is still committed. It's one thing to hear that the Biden Harris com- ticket are still care about this a lot. But if the DNC keeps honestly like trying to position itself as the center with John Kasich and as a part of their you know and, and Colin Powell showing up at their you know at their at their stuff. I'm still not really convinced that you are actually seriously taking this. And, and until I see $2 trillion being spent in the ways that they said, I am, I'm not praising anyone. Yeah. And, and even that, that $2 trillion number um, is obviously considerably less. And I mean, we always knew it would be. It's considerably less than, this, than the $16 trillion that Bernie had thrown out and people were so excited about. And, and I think it's sort of, it's to the point you were making earlier with this lack of, of ambition the DNC is showing us is that it's like, I, I don't understand how they still don't get that what people want is transformative change. And, and what we need is transformative change. And actually like when it comes to climate change, when you're talking to people about the action that needs to be taken, transformative change is, is, is what gets people jazzed up. Even if it's not somebody who's all that keen or like all that interested in climate change, Statistics and studies show that when you come in and you talk to people about the big changes that we're going to be making, that's what can turn somebody into a climate voter because they see that you take the risk seriously and that you're actually committed to to, to making some modicum of change. Um, so, so that's disappointing. And I, and I mean, like, is it surprising? No, of course it's not. We know that, like, with Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, like, you're never going to get. I don't know, you're never going to get the AOC swing for the fences type of ambition, but it would be nice if they actually demonstrated in a meaningful way that the last year of primaries and the last year of like discussion and debate and discourse actually had some sort of meaningful effect on the policy that the DNC is going to be putting forward. Especially because like, like you said, by the time a bill actually does get to Congress or get to Senate, it's like the filibuster can block almost anything. So if you go in there with anything less than guns blazing, you're not going to get anything meaningful through. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I and I, I think that the last note I'll put on that before we go to the next topic is to is to put the finest point on what you just said. The we have the proof is the fact that the Green New Deal is currently polling at well it was currently polling quite well and a price on carbon or any of these more moderate solutions have been entirely successfully tanked by the conservatives. And so we see in polling ambition does well and trying to nibble at the edges is seen as 
either is still successfully demonized. So if you're going to be demonized either way, tell people how it will help them rather than just try to nibble at the edges in the ways that we sort of see. And, you know, I think that's the that's what's proven to work or at least proven to pull well, which is the best we've got. Exactly. Incrementalism is not only is it boring, it's disappointing. It's lackluster. You're never going to you're never going to get anybody canvassing for you if the best you can promise is incrementalism. And, and I don't know, like canvassing is what wins you an election. So give your head a shake, DNC, if any of you are listening. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Every one of them. With uh, bated breath, especially this week during, yeah. their, during their convention. Yeah. yeah, they're listening right now, which is why we have another idea for you about how to build the green economy. So in an article for the New Republic about restructuring U.S. government investment, Kate Aronoff writes, quote, when the U.S. government decides to fund a bridge or other infrastructure, the capital to do so tends to flow in some way through private hands, particularly at the state and local levels. Without the ability to deficit spend, cash-strapped municipalities and even utilities that might want to invest in climate mitigation and resiliency projects have to raise money by selling bonds on the secondary market, often with Wall Street banks siphoning off fat underwriting fees for each transition. And then she mentions, of course, worse still is the problem faced by municipalities with poor credit ratings, uh, like junk-rated Puerto Rican bonds, for instance, uh, which have attracted predatory investors who snap up cheap debt only to, inve- only to demand payout through brutal litigation. The, to help amend this situation, in which public money is given to huge fossil fuel companies while regular people can't even find unemployment benefits in a pandemic, and there's apparently no money for green infrastructure, Aronoff gives support to a new idea gaining steam in Washington which would see the government create a national investment authority with its own national infrastructure bank and national management corporation. The government would thereby become the owner and manager of its investments rather than just lending or giving money with various conditions. It would coordinate private investment that is usually floundering in short-term profit-making schemes rather than providing the kind of long-term investment needed for things like high-speed rail and affordable housing. Aronoff writes that the management side would, quote, allow the federal government to see a return on the prodigious amount of startup funding it already provides to many profitable firms. It would operate similarly to a traditional private equity firm, with a fund taking on equity stakes in new ventures and reaping returns when they come back. uh, Given private investors' traditional risk aversion, it can also allow more innovative projects, firms, and industries to get off the ground. This could be done in partnership with private companies, and if a project is ultimately successful, the government could either retain its stake and decision-making power or sell that off, generating more funds to furnish future rounds of innovation. Yeah. So first of all, I highly recommend reading the article because it is quite in-depth and gets into sort of the ways that this would work. But if I can give some people, some people might be aware of the Toronto Atmospheric Fund. And in many ways, it's a similar concept, which is the idea that you is that you give a bunch of money uh, up front to a government agency, which then uses it like a regular investing firm to invest towards specific goals. For this case, it'd be infrastructure, ideally green infrastructure, because a lot of green infrastructure has nearly guaranteed payoffs, especially things like if you're like energy efficiency. Energy efficiency almost guarantees a percentage you get back because it saves the investor, it saves the building money, and so they can pay you back with the money that they've saved on energy. You know, barring the building exploding, basically. Um, and so, and so, it's a very safe investment and provides a rate of return, which that money can then go back to the actual bank itself or the investment agency itself. It's controlled by the government, which can then invest it back out again. You know, and and that is very important in a lot of scenarios like in the states where states and municipalities cannot run deficits. So they have to find upfront investment for all these types of infrastructure projects because they're not allowed to run a debt or a deficit to any, any, any signature. And this would allow the federal government to sort of step in and be that investor which would allow the public to maintain the pro- the, the, the payback uh, of the extra investments rather than privatizing the debt, which would mean the money would then go to these you know major investment companies like BlackRock or whatever. You know, it allows the public, you know, it, when you, you often hear a major complaint about uh, about Carcorn Society is that we publicize uh, you know the the risks and and privatize the profits. This would be a way of actually creating 
public profits on investments and allowing them to be reinvested in other all other things for public good. And that and that's that's the idea. It's, it's obviously I'm sure significantly more com- complicated in actual reality because it's fiscal policy. But that's the general concept and would go a long way. Yeah. No. And and I mean like reading this article. Um, I think specifically the phrase that Aronoff uses that like kind of got my heart a flutter is she talks about like democratizing the financial system, which sounds so exciting because then it would mean theoretically in this beautiful magical world where this body existed, we, or in in this case, we're we're putting ourselves in the position of, of American citizens. We wouldn't be so beholden to this big invisible hand in the sky that's controlling the money and doesn't help anybody out in actuality. My question, and actually I'm almost wondering, Stefan, if you could maybe answer this for me, because where I do get nervous about something like this is with the example of something like Export Development Canada, which I wonder how similar Export Development Canada is to this um, theoretical national management corporation that Aronoff brings up and sort of proposes because Export Development Canada, though I, I, I'm not super well-versed in their practices, in the last couple years, they do seem to be coming up increasingly as sort of this body that is funding and investing and supporting oil and gas projects um, at an increase, maybe not at an increasing rate, but at least at, at a rate that is being brought to my attention more and more. Um, and it's a and it yeah it's it's a way the Canadian government investing in oil and gas projects without necessarily like taking full ownership as the Canadian government of investing in oil and gas projects. And again, I might be totally misreading the situation, but I, I do worry about something like that coming yeah. into play here. For sure, and I. From what you read in this article, obviously the intention would be it would be for it to focus on infrastructure specifically, things like bridges, but then that could still be highways, right? There still could be you know it's it's most of the conversation here is about uh, government owned infrastructure, which I think is slightly di- which is slightly different. She does mention the idea of investing in in new technologies as well, um, which would get closer to what you're worried about. And honestly, what you're worried about has exactly happened in the story that we're about to talk about. About the with, about Aimco, which is in in which the Notley government encouraged Aimco to go out and invest more money in Alberta, ideally in things that it would it would that would move us move them away from fossil fuels. And Aimco took that to mean, oh, we're going to invest two hundred million dollars directly back into fossil fuel money because it's Albertan, and and then it goes sideways, which we'll talk to Jeremy Appel in a second about. But but yes, so it, it you're not wrong. It truly is. Uh, a concern that could be at play here, but my understanding is that it's if they focus mostly on infrastructure and, gov- and and infrastructure that municipalities and other stuff are moving forward on, then it would not necessarily it could avoid a lot of those concerns of like investing in you know in an oil and gas infrastructure. But of course, here in Canada, we own a pipeline, so it's it's certainly never going to be perfect. Well, thank you for that explainer and that teaching moment. I I sincerely hope I was right. We'll find out. This is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with Jeremy Appel, a journalist based out of Medicine Hat and co-host of Big Shiny Takes and and also a second podcast called The Forgotten Corner. Uh, Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's been a while. I know, serious. And so we're having you on because you published a story for Progress Report titled AIMCO loaned an oil company $45 million, let that company pay out millions to shareholders, and now it can't make the interest payments. Obviously, that sounds like a concerning statement. We've covered AIMCO previously on the show a few times, but for any new listeners who missed those previous shows, can you explain what AIMCO is and what it's responsible for? So AIMCO stands for Alberta Investment Management Company. And it's the province's largest uh, public sector pension fund. And, you know, as as is commonplace for pension funds, they uh, make various investments. And in the Alberta context, uh, a lot of them are oil and gas companies. The UCP government passed a law to bring the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund and uh, another uh, strong pension fund under AIMCO's aegis. So they have to have their pensions managed through AIMCO, even though their pensions are actually doing better than AIMCO. So the 
AIMCO situation is a very strong example of the regulatory capture of the energy industry um, and the government. Yeah, and we've, we've covered previously some of the other investments that AIMCO has done to, to prop up, you know, various oil companies throughout. But this one is particularly concerning if, if only because it feels like money is being just siphoned out of Alberta in some way, right? So, so you can, can you sort of give us a, a little bit of an, a, a deeper dive into what the details of the agreement that was made and, and why that's an issue? Oh, well, first of all, I forgot to mention that under the previous Alberta government, the New Democrats, um, they created the Alberta Growth Mandate, which required AIMCO to make investments uh, through its heritage fund and also through making loans into Alberta-based companies. But if you look up the definition, it's very vague. Like, creates jobs in Alberta, is based in Alberta, uses Alberta product. But what they didn't say was not to invest it in failing oil and gas companies, even though the price of oil had already tanked right before they got into power. So this comes out of that. Uh, Razor is like a junior energy company. I, I think that means that they produce less than 10,000 barrels a day. And they received two loans from AIMCO. Once in January 2017, at the end of the month, and again in January of 2018. Now, the stock of Razor is trending generally downward at that time, but there's a bit of an uptick. And in October of that year, I believe, AIMCO announced it was paying out a uh, dividend to its shareholders. After that, the price keeps going down. And then in February, they announced they're canceling the dividend. And so AIMCO lent them this money. And I think in June it was, it was not long before this article was published. Razor announced that it couldn't pay the interest on the loans. And I mean, the whole point of a pension fund lending a company money is that they'll get more money through interest for the pensioners, right? That's kind of what they do. Yeah. So basically what's happened here is that they've received $45 million of public funds. They have now given out millions of dollars back to their shareholders who may or may not be in Alberta. And so, and so this seems like, obviously this seems like a concern, but I feel like often in these kinds of stories, the, for those people who are not often in the finance industry, you don't know whether or not these agreements are normal, right? Like you hear about stock dividends or buybacks and stuff like that, and you don't know whether or not these are, that's a normal practice for a company or not. So, so is, is it normal to loan a company $45 million and then, be, and then, and then put yourself in a scenario where they, they can give their shareholders money but and at the expense of perhaps never paying you back, because obviously that's a concern here, is that AIMCO, if it can't pay, it pay its interest, certainly can't pay its principal, and that's $45 million you've just lost. I mean, it is normal for AIMCO to lend money, right? Right. As, right. And it is normal for them to lend it to failing oil companies. Razor is not the only example. So... I would say it is normal, but it obviously shouldn't be, and not a lot of people talk about it because the oil and gas industry has such um, hegemony over institutions. Right. In, in, in this particular case, though, a pension fund manager I spoke with for the story, Paul Walker, told me that he's never heard of a punch, pension fund lending money to someone and not stipulating that they can't pay out shareholders, um, particularly when it's not like the company's stock was consistently going up. Right. Like in the story, you, you referenced the fact that the stock at one point was at three or four dollars and then it per share and it has now it's now at 12 cents. Like, yeah, not a little drop. It's it's bottoming out. Yeah, exactly. It's precipitous. So one last sort of final question on the way out. But I'm curious if there is a takeaway that you think that should be taken away from the story, because it does seem like, as you mentioned, to, to imply larger things or to be a part of a larger narrative. Yeah, I, I think it's very much a microcosm, uh, an interesting microcosm of 
the role uh, the oil and gas industry play in all of Alberta's institutions. And I think what is so maybe glaring here and outrageous is that people's retirements, their deferred wages, are being put into a dying industry. And you know, I, I think we need to acknowledge that uh, in order to create something better. Right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and you know, love to have you back on the show. Jeremy Appel, if, uh, if any listener wants to hear more, they can check out Big Shiny Takes uh, or The Forgotten Corner. The Forgotten Corner, I understand, is a little more uh, Alberta-focused. Big Shiny Takes is more about media generally. Thanks so much, Jeremy, and have a wonderful day. For those of you who listen uh, not from Ontario, I apologize. The next little bit is very Ontario-focused, but I think the concept and conversation uh, has a wider and more broad uh, import. Because I am joined by Sarah Buchanan, the Clean Economy Program Manager with Environmental Defense, and we are talking about Highway 413. If you haven't heard of it, it's because, at my, to my understanding, it doesn't exist yet. And it is a new highway that, uh, that the Doug Ford government is trying to push through. But perhaps, Sarah, obviously, since you've been following this more closely than I have been, you can give us an overview of the project. I can, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the specter of this highway has, has been haunting Ontario actually since 2007. Um, so it, it dates back to the previous government um, when, you know, essentially the whole area west of Toronto, the GTA West area, um, it, it's expanding, it's growing. Previous government started looking at transportation options to make sure people in this region can, can get where they need to go. And uh, so it was a, it was a whole uh, environmental assessment was launched on that whole transportation corridor in the GTA West. One of the ideas in that was a highway, uh, 400 series highway, um, and 400 series highways are pretty massive. Um, so after you know, many years of, of study and looking at transportation options and population data um, for this region, um, the previous government in 2018 decided to scrap the highway portion of this transportation corridor. Um, they had a, an expert advisory panel who looked at it, did a bunch of modeling, and looked at the alternatives like, like you know, improving GO Transit, um, widening other highways instead, and that expert panel decided, you know what, this is not really going to help people. This highway uh, won't save commuters very much time. They estimated 30 to 60 seconds of time savings in one trip across the GTHA. Um, it's going to be really expensive. They estimated about $5 billion, probably a lot more nowadays. And uh, the alternatives are not only cheaper, but they're better the environment, they create less air pollution, better for people's health, um, and kind of get people where they need to be going in, in a better, less infuriating way. Um, and so, and they also talked about the idea of induced demand, where, you know, essentially if you build it, people will come. You build a new highway, the highway just gets filled with new commuters who make the decision to drive. Um, and so all that, you know, came together in a report uh, and then the previous government said, okay, we're going to stop the environmental assessment for this highway. Um, and then when the Ford government took over, they started it up again. So it's sort of a zombie highway that's, that's come back to, to haunt us in Ontario. But what hasn't changed is we still don't need it. Um, and uh, and, and it, that's one of the most infuriating parts of this is the evidence is there to show us that we, we really don't need this. It's not going to help the people that they think it's going to help. And it's really expensive. Um, and now it's being sped up uh, or they're, they're, they're proposing uh, to speed up the environmental assessment of this highway um, under the guise of economic stimulus uh, coming out of the pandemic, saying we need to get shovels in the ground to uh, get people working. So we're going to speed up this highway, race through uh, some important uh, environmental assessments, not do uh, the whole process uh, so we can get this started. Um, and that's something that, that we have a pretty big problem with. Yeah, totally. And I, 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 this wasn't actually something that we had sort of discussed talking about, but I, am, I do want to jump in briefly to this thing about how 
important and and difficult it is that this is being proposed right now at a time when, like, you're using COVID as an explanation as to why you need to speed it up as economic stimulus. I put that in air quotes. But in reality, we don't actually even know how this, how COVID will impact how people are even commuting in the city, right? You know, there's all this conversation about how much disruption uh, to everyday commutes will be occurring. And so you could be potentially building a highway to slow down commutes that people won't be making, right? And, and at a time when the, the city of Toronto is starved for money to spend $5 billion uh, when the city itself can't afford to maintain, you know, regular TTC routes or anything, it, it strikes me as, as, as particularly short-sighted, I guess I'll say. Absolutely. And one of the things we're asking for is just a simple evaluation of how commuting patterns have and, and may change uh, in light of, uh, of the pandemic. I, like I, I cannot think of a worse time to sink $5 billion, 5 to 10, who knows how much is going to be now, into a huge piece of pavement that is for commuters to get from their homes to their workplaces, many of them in Toronto. Um, because so many people uh, are now working from home and that may last for the foreseeable future for some of these commuters. So you're totally right. Um, There's really no knowledge right now about how the pandemic is impacting people's travel uh, patterns in the region. The knowledge we do have indicates that um, it's, it's meaning more people are not making those trips. And so destroying a whole bunch of sensitive ecosystems uh, and, and many other things in order to uh, build this highway and, and to speed up doing that is, is I, I completely not understandable to me. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps we can, I'm curious about exactly how and what the government is using to, to be able to use COVID as a reason to speed this up. Is like, what laws have they decided to use? Or is it more of just an argument saying, like, are there laws in the books that allow for this to be sped up? Or is it more of a statement of, look, we need to do this because we need to get, you know, shovels in the ground or whatever, so we're mm-hmm. doing it. Right, so this, um, so they, they actually introduced a, um, a piece of legislation specific to this highway. Um, and it said, we want to, you know, streamline and shorten uh, what we would normally have to do for an environmental assessment for this kind of highway. Um, and so that piece of legislation came um, at the same time as, as Bill 197, which some folks may have heard of. It was a, a massive omnibus bill with a whole bunch of, of uh, different things in it from, you know, schools to, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. But there was some regulations around environmental assessments in there. Um, and just in general, uh, this government wants to speed up environmental assessments for pretty much all big projects. Uh, we don't have a ton of details on what that's going to look like yet. So at the same time, they were saying, um, you know, we need this highway to start pretty much immediately. Um, and so we want to specifically speed up this environmental assessment. So both of those things came as part of an economic recovery package in Ontario where the four governments said, here's how we're gonna help Ontario recover from this health emergency. Um, And when I looked it over, I mean, my first thought was, really, this is what you're offering us? You're offering us faster environmental assessments and less environmental oversight. That's your response to, you know, millions of people who need economic help, who, um, you know, are experiencing health impacts, um, who, who want to know what your plan is for, you know, improving things like uh, resilience to, to infectious diseases. <laughs> this is what you have to offer is, is a highway and, and shovels in the ground faster. So I think that they're sort of racing to, um, to look like they are providing shovels in the ground for jobs without actually thinking about the impact of some of the projects that they're speeding up. Um, I think, you know, projects in order to uh, boost employment numbers um, do make sense, but there has to be a a lot of thought as to how those projects actually impact Ontario in a a post-pandemic or a current pandemic context. 
So why not, you know, get shovels in the ground on transit projects for people in the GTA West region? Why not help people in Brampton, Brampton get where they need to go, which may not actually be Toronto. It may be, you know, it may be Hamilton. It may be heading somewhere uh, even just within Brampton. So Brampton's been waiting for all the funding for a lot of transit projects. Um, why not, you know, expand uh, go train service? So these are things that would increase jobs, uh, increase employment numbers, and provide some economic stimulus, uh, but wouldn't have you know the health impacts that uh, that you know we project for this highway, and wouldn't destroy uh, ecosystems in the same massive way. Yeah, and what's amazing is is that they've only committed three hundred million dollars to help schools get back under underway, and somehow cannot find the money, which would high, be hiring people. Let's be real: the the school mandate. If you gave them the five billion dollars, you would solve the question of how schools can reopen safely. You would have to hire significantly more teachers to reduce classroom size. And you wouldn't destroy the environment. It, it, there's just so many other ways $5 billion can be spent. You know, I have shades of the, of the Toronto argument around the East Gardner, which I, we won't have to get into here. But the idea that we're spending billions of dollars on, on honestly, antiquated infrastructure. I, 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 am, I do see a very direct line comparing right now highway expansions like this to, to, pipe, to pipelines. You know, in that it's antiquated infrastructure for, for things that we have to get off of, namely personal vehicles or, or oil more generally. Um, yeah. But let's, let's dive into some of the more specific issues that you sort of have, you've highlighted, you've highlighted them a little bit, but you also released a bit of a, I don't know if it's a, a bit of a report uh, about why the highway should be canceled. And so maybe we can run through some of those, those pieces. For sure. Yeah, so we, um, we actually just this week are releasing um, a report that goes, goes through some of the uh, environmental uh, impacts that the proposed highway might have um, and also talks a little bit about um, uh, a whole range of impacts, uh, including the fact that it's going to have health impacts, all, uh, carbon emissions. Um, you know, transportation is the largest source of carbon pollution in Ontario right now. Um, so putting a new highway uh, out there and increasing vehicle traffic is going to mean that's even worse. Um, more vehicles would be spewing out more greenhouse gas emissions. So it's definitely bad for climate change. Anyway, so this, this report details uh, some of those basic arguments and um, it is a little more focused on the environmental um, ecosystem impacts as well as some of the alternatives like, like building transit and um, showing some, some differences between the highway and those alternatives. Um, and then we also have, you know, materials like a blog and press releases. So if people just want a quick take on what is this highway? Why should I care about it? Is it going to go through my backyard or where I like to, you know, go take my kid on hikes? Um, then, uh, they can take a look at that blog as well. We've got maps of exactly where, uh, that proposed route is going to go. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to have more materials coming out, you know, throughout the next year. Uh, some that look at the, you know, actually quantify the greenhouse gas emissions impact that's estimated from this highway and the air pollution impact. Um, so we're going to, we're going to keep it coming and you can find all that. Um, I'd suggest going to our blog at environmentaldefense.ca, choose blog. Um, there's a, there's a pretty fresh blog that I've got up there that talks about the highway and links you to uh, the report and it links you to this place where you can give your comments to the government on why this is a bad idea. Um, and lots of information there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it, just as a quick highlight, what, what I found, you know, glancing over this is, you know, what you're getting is 30 seconds uh, per trip uh, of a decrease, and what you're losing is 2,000 acres of class one and class two farmland. So, you know, it's only, only a couple thousand acres of the farmland we desperately need to, so I don't know, feed ourselves during a pandemic that might potentially disrupt global supply chains. And what we get is 30 seconds faster on a highway that may not be necessary given again the pandemic we live in. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, it is one of these things where I'm with you. I, I, I'm, I am the level of flabbergasted I am about some of these, some of these, this particular decision is, is, uh, cannot be overstated, I think. Right. Well, it just feels like we've stepped right out of the 1970s with like this, this kind of old style, old timey view of economic stimulus that it just doesn't fit a modern world. Um, and it makes me wonder 
what's going on in those uh, in those decision making rooms that this yeah. seems like the best decision. Yeah, and especially given how little the Ford government has decided to spend on any COVID relief, right? Like it's, to me, it's been this experience of they've basically relied on everything the feds are doing, haven't really bothered to match anything. And then their first thing that I hear about that they're really into is, is giving no money really to schools and $5 billion for a high. Yeah. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So if you are as flabbergasted as I am and you want to get involved in this, um, I do know that, as I mentioned actually on last week's show, but I'll get you to say it again, um, there's a deadline coming up at least for the first round of, of responses. Yeah. Yep. So there is, there is a consultation through the you know, provincial portal for, uh, for new legislation that might impact the environment on the environment registry. Uh, there's consultation on basically whether or not they should speed up the environmental assessment for this highway. Um, so it's not necessarily a consultation on, you know, should we build this highway? It's should we speed up the assessment of it? Um, but it is a good opportunity to, you know, show the volume of, of how many people um, are upset about this or concerned or opposed. And so we have an action tool on our website. Um, again, if you go to that blog I mentioned, it links you to it. Uh, an action tool basically helps you fill out that form that sends it to the province. It also copies your MPP and the transportation minister and the environment minister. Um, so in one fell swoop, you can tell all of those people um, that uh, you have some concerns about this highway. And also um, you can tell them that, uh, you know, exactly why. Um, and uh, we encourage you to, to definitely do that. That closes this Saturday. So um, it's just a few days left. I guess by the time we hear this, it's going to be uh, very, very close, maybe one day. And so I really encourage you to, to you know, make your voice heard. It uh, doesn't take much time at all. Environmentaldefense.ca, go to the blog, find the Highway 413 blog. It'll, it'll hook you up. Amazing. Uh, I, can, I will say that if you just Google Environmental Defense Highway 4, 413, it does show up as the top hit. So Even better. Even better. Work. I should say to you, if, if, you know, folks are listening and they do live in the GTA West area, um, there are local, you know, ratepayers associations and environmental groups um, who are starting to or, or have been working on this for years uh, and helped um, put this highway to bed uh, last time it was proposed. And so I, I also recommend, you know, you uh, reach out as a local resident and say, I have some concerns about this project. I live here, um, and uh, and contact your MPP and let them know, um, and get involved with those local groups as well because they uh, they definitely can use more voices. Amazing! Uh, thank you so much, Sarah Buchanan from Environmental Defense. We'll we'll keep coming back to this as it moves on. So love to have you back on the show at any point in time. Uh, and thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Devin. <laughs>